This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 131 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Andrew Madsen. Hello, from Salt Lake City. James Zuber. It's been raining here for three days. I'm not sure how people in Portland deal with this. <laughs> I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. And this week, we're going to be talking about MIK MIDI and maintaining open source libraries. Do you want to kind of give us a, a rundown, Andrew, of what MIK MIDI is and what it's about? I know we did an episode on this, so a summary is probably enough. So we did do a show about MIK MIDI, uh, I think it's been about a year ago, episode 57. And this is a framework that that I wrote as part of my work at Mixed in Key, but we open sourced it. And originally, it was all about adding support for MIDI devices to your Mac or iOS app. So if you want to hook up a MIDI keyboard or a DJ controller or something and do something with that in your app, MIK MIDI would let you do that. Since that time, we've done a lot of work on it. Uh, we're using it in more of our own apps and, and have gotten good feedback from other people using it. And, and we've expanded it to sort of encompass all of the stuff that you do with MIDI. And the, the big stuff that has been added is support for MIDI files, so loading and saving MIDI files, uh, as well as doing recording, playback, MIDI synthesis, and that kind of stuff. So it's gone far beyond just device connection and communication. And since we had people using it, there have been some you know things that we had to consider in doing a major update because people already have the code and are using it. So what do you keep in mind, I guess, in an open source project when you are adding features or changing the way a library works? In some sense, you have to take the same kind of perspective that, for example, Apple might take, where you don't want to release an update that breaks a bunch of existing stuff for people. You know, they update to your new code to get the cool new stuff you added. And meanwhile, all the stuff that they were already using is broken or changed or they've got to go, you know, rewrite a lot of code because you've completely redesigned the API. So you have to be sort of aware of sometimes you might want to make a change to an API, but you got to either figure out how to do that without breaking it for existing users or... You know, you just can't do it. And uh, that can be a little bit tough. And I think it also adds a somewhat of a testing burden, right? Because you need to you need to test to be sure that you're not going to break existing stuff. And it's all a little more complicated than if you're just developing, just writing code that only you are using and nobody else sees or cares about changes to. Huh. I guess that's true. I mean, I've done some open source stuff, but I tend to mostly, I don't usually make that many breaking changes. And then where I do... Um, sometimes I've actually been tempted to say, you know, original method or original call and then original call the better way or something <laughs> where it's, it's, hey, you know, there is a better way to do this. But uh, I have added on some of the open source libraries that I've maintained in the past, I have actually added APIs that do the better thing alongside the old APIs. Because, yeah, somebody who's using it, if they want to upgrade it, I want to give them some kind of path, and so I'll deprecate the old way and give them some new way that does it better or faster or whatever. Right, and so 
I think the important thing is not necessarily that you can't ever change anything and do, you know, new things that are better. You just, you do need to give users a, a good and clear path so that, you know, if their, if their experience is they pull your new code and they try to build with it and it just doesn't even build, they just get a bunch of compiler errors. That's pretty bad. And even worse would be no compiler errors, but stuff just doesn't work right anymore. And so the approach that we took, and, and luckily it's one that the tools support pretty well. Xcode and, and the compiler support pretty well is that you can actually mark methods as deprecated now or, or APIs as deprecated and then update their documentation to say that they're deprecated and also to tell whoever is reading this what the new way to do things is. And the advantage that has is they'll get warnings that they're using deprecated API, but nothing will break. And if they want to go fix those warnings, it's pretty easy to, to look at the documentation right in Xcode and see what the new API is. So my usual response to the deprecation warnings is just to turn off the warnings. Is that how I'm supposed to do it? That's exactly um, that's exactly what we want you to do. So okay. then in our breaking API release where we actually finally remove the deprecated stuff, then you can just get compiler errors instead. All right. You're fine until you fall off the cliff then. All right. Yeah, that's but but I mean that's you know, speaking more generally, because Apple has deprecated APIs too, right? They deprecate APIs between releases. And sometimes I think you do have to make somewhat of a call on whether you're gonna replace all that right away. Because I think updating to new API means thoroughly testing and you know, can sometimes be a somewhat major rewrite. And so I wouldn't say turn off the warnings, but I think deprecation warnings are one kind of compiler warning that occasionally there's a legitimate reason to ignore, at least temporarily. Yeah, definitely. I've worked with a number of apps that haven't been touched in, you know, an iOS release or so. And, you know, those warnings are there and you may not want to touch them just yet because you don't know what that part of the code is doing and it's been working. But getting more on topic, uh, how do you make the decision whether you want to do a deprecation like uh, with this release? Uh, did you keep the iPad the same or did you kind of iterate on it, create some new things and deprecate. What was your approach there? It was kind of interesting because some of the stuff in this release we had, for better or for worse, we had released it in in the previous release and, and sort of marked it experimental, told people that, hey, we're still working on this. There's some useful stuff here, but we're not done with it. And as we continued to work on that and really fill it out, there were choices we had made early on that obviously were wrong. We just decided we, we couldn't design the API that way. And so we did actually formally deprecate some of the stuff that was in the previous release. We were lucky that I think with very few exceptions, the stuff we deprecated was pretty easy to just rewrite internally so that it called through to the new stuff and did not break existing users' use of it at all. But it wasn't something we took lightly because I knew there were people that are actually using this in, in real apps and I didn't want to make life hard. And I think it's a sign of a poor quality project if you're not taking that care. Okay, by deprecate, you mean remove the functionality, not just flag it as something that might get removed in the future. Oh, no, I, I mean, we did not actually remove any API. So by deprecate, I simply mean we just marked things deprecated so that they'll get a compiler warning and there's some documentation saying, hey, we're going to get rid of this in the future. You should remove it. But nothing was actually removed such that it could not be used at all anymore. Okay. How does that work versus, say, replacing something? So... You, know, you replace something that maybe has the same uh, signature, so it takes the same arguments or, you know, generally at least looks the same but may work a little bit differently. How do you determine whether you're going to replace something or deprecate it in favor of another way? My personal feeling is if you're not going to – if the external API is going to stay the same, so, you know, a particular method name and arguments are the same, it's fine if you rewrite that internally. 
but it should not break valid existing use of it. So, right. you know, it's fine to completely rewrite. And that's kind of one of the whole advantages uh, of object-oriented programming, right, is encapsulation so that you can make internal changes without breaking existing external use of that code. And so there there are a lot of examples of that where we changed the way something was done internally completely without breaking, you know, without changing the external API at all. So you can't even tell that it was rewritten internally. It still works the same from the outside. And in some cases that was, uh, you know, because we were just refactoring code and, and wanted to do things in a cleaner or better way. But in other cases we were, we were fixing bugs. And I think fixing bugs is a perfectly legitimate mm-hmm. reason to even change behavior. Say you fix the bug, but if it's just truly a bug, I don't think users expect you to keep your bugs most of the time. Right. So as long as it's as long as it has the same expected outcome or the same expected side effects, the same expected return value, if all of those things hold out, then you can do more or less whatever you want inside to make it better. Yeah, right. And I and, and and another thing I would add to that is when I'm doing this kind of a release, which I've done on other projects, I try to be really clear about documenting all that. So I wrote, you know, for this release, there's a pretty big change log that tells exactly what APIs were added, what, what were changed, the, the bugs we fixed, and especially the stuff we deprecated. And as much as possible, that stuff's cross-referenced to the issue tracker on GitHub. So you can, you know, if you want to know more about something or see the actual code changes we made for a given change log item, you can look at that. And My goal is that if somebody really cares or needs to dig deep on any of this stuff, the information's all there. You highlighted one problem of creating new functionality or making changes to your library, how do you communicate these with the user? One approach you mentioned is doing a readme, saying this is what we changed, this is what might be deprecated. Did you use any any versioning to... Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. So good Good question. Right. So um, we try to follow the semantic versioning system. And the last release was was 1.0, and and we're calling this 1.5.0, which I think is a slight corruption of semantic versioning, because I think depending on who you ask, this maybe should have been a 2.0 because we deprecated API. But my feeling was it's a major release, but we did not actually remove or break any API. So 2.0, you know, it doesn't need to be a truly major version bump. Um, but one thing that does is that the, you know, as long as you, particularly in, in the Cocoa ecosystem, if you tag your stuff properly and, for example, are using Cocoa Pods or Carthage, those systems will allow you to specify which version you want to use. So if somebody doesn't want to update to this new release and they're already using 1.0, it's very easy for them to stay there as long as they need to. Yeah, right. semantic versioning is something that everyone understands until they actually have to write a library where people are depending on it, <laughs> which yeah. you find out pretty quickly. Yeah, so this I, is especially poignant in Node.js because NPM actually expects and tries to enforce semantic versioning. And so when people get it wrong, it really screws them up. Yeah, and I actually think... Talk a little bit about like, the different levels. So semantic versioning, you've got three numbers, which throws people over the loop because they want more sometimes. But you know, you get three numbers... And you talked about a 2.0 versus a 1.0, and like, how do you make that decision? Or 2.0.0 versus first one? How do you make that decision? 
Well, so if you actually read the documentation for semantic versioning, which I, this is just some guy that came up with this, like so much of <laughs> so much of programming. Yeah. Yeah. Everything is basically some guy, some you know, developer, right? <laughs> but it's now widely used. But the idea is that you have three version numbers and the, the first one is the major version number. The second one is the minor version number. And then the third one is the patch number. And the way you increment them depends on the changes you've made in your library or app or whatever. You increment the patch. So like you go from 1.0.0 to 1.0.1 when you just make bug fixes that don't affect the external API at all. and Or clean up refactoring or anything else like yeah, that. Yeah, but it doesn't change from a user, a user of the code's perspective. They don't need to care about any of the changes you made. Just, oh, hey, it's better. It's got mm-hmm. bug fixes, but I don't need to do anything. And of course, if you're going to do that, you've got to be really careful that you're not making major changes because some systems like – I. You mentioned NPM, Chuck, but I think even CocoaPods, depending on how you've set up your pod file, you can tell it to automatically pull patch versions without pulling major or minor versions. I think that's yes. true. Yeah, uh, the pod file in CocoaPods is based loosely on RubyGems and Bundler. Right, yeah. And, and yeah, it's the same there. You can specify a specific version or you can specify that anything above the patch minor or major version number that you've put in there is acceptable. And so... The minor version is when you make changes, not just bug fixes, but you, uh, well, semantic versioning says you add functionality in a backwards compatible manner. So you're mm-hmm. making changes, you're adding new stuff, but you're not actually, you're not breaking things for existing users. And then a major version is when you make breaking API changes. So you make changes that mean that existing, you know, users of existing versions can't just upgrade and you know, expect things to work without changes. So... Turns out it's a little bit uh, more complicated than it sounds, right? Because technically this release I just have, we've been talking about is just a minor bump from 1.0.1 to 1.5.0. And technically I did not make any breaking changes, right? But I did add these deprecated <sighs> methods. So you'll get warnings, but not errors. And uh, Yeah, but deprecations, deprecations aren't breaking changes. Yeah. They're just warnings that things are going to change. Right. I won't remove any of this stuff until you know, version 2 at least. I think you should jump from version 1.5 to version 10. Like Node did from version 0. something to 4, or whatever yeah, that was. Yeah, well, there's a bit of story behind that. Uh, they adopted the versioning of io.js, which split off from them, and then when they came back together. Yeah, I, I actually kind of knew that. But. but, yeah, anyway, so why did you bump from 1.0 to 1.5 instead of 1.1? Well, it's funny. The branch that we developed this all this new stuff on was 1.1. And it was called 1.1 until like the minute I released it. But it was just clear that, you know, I mean, this was probably a a problem of management for us. But what we thought was going to be sort of a a minor bump got bigger and bigger and bigger as time went on and took longer and longer and longer to finish. And when we were finally done, which was just about, I, I actually think it was on Saturday that I did this. So like four days ago as we record it was like, well, we're adding way more stuff than I expected to add for 1.1. So I called it 1.5 just to sort of convey the the fact that this is a big deal. you know. So, so if you get someone who asks, where, like, where's version 1.3? You just say it's only, it only works on Windows 9. Yeah, exactly. You symlink it. It works on Windows 9. Yep. The, the changes between 1.3 and 1.4 and 1.5 are really, really, really small. I mean, I could go back and make fake tags for them, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah anyway that's interesting and it's funny too because um then you get into what is a breaking change right so some people consider a bug fix that actually changes the behavior that people might have relied on as a breaking change and other people don't and so 
in those cases, the people who don't would advance the minor number and the people who do would advance the major number. And so it yeah. would go from 1.0 to 2.0 instead of 1.0 to 1.1. And to be honest, we're not at the point with this framework where we have enough people using it that we probably even know about those kinds of bugs, you know, because yeah. I don't really know what people are having to we're having to work around. But for a really big vendor, like like a platform vendor like Apple or somebody, mm-hmm. I know they do that, right? There are bugs that are in Cocoa and they, you know, they're pretty widespread that people are doing specific things to work around those bugs and relying on the fact that the bugs are there. And if they fix the bug, they actually break things for people. And so they don't, you know, they go out of their way not to fix them. And we did not do any of that. But that's kind of a hard question. How do you really answer that? Yeah, and I think there is some consideration to that, too. You know, am I affecting hundreds of people or tens of people or thousands of people? Right, and I don't, I mean, I don't know. We've got like 100 stars on GitHub and a few hundred installs on CocoaPods, so it's not as if we're affecting millions of developers or anything. You're 100 air. I'm 100 air. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, with semantic version, you at least give the user the library the power to decide what they want to happen. You know, because depending on the phase of the software, the application, they might want completely different things. If you're working on something all the time, you're developing an app, you probably want the bleeding edge stuff always. You know, see what, as soon as you can get it, you do your pod update, you get the new stuff. If you've got a mature piece of software that's been around for a while, you might want to lock down the versioning, even down to the patch version, just to not have any risk of it updating. And you give the user the power to do things in between, because if something's not being used a lot, you don't want to invite little changes that can break stuff. You just want to lock that kind of kind of thing down. Yeah, and and uh, I mean that doesn't mean you never want to update, but it means that you you have control over it. So that when you decide to update these dependencies, you do that when you have time to test and make sure that you know things did not break, and you can make changes if you need to to support the new stuff and whatever. But to me, that's a pretty important part of being a good citizen as far as putting code out there for other other people to use. Because I, if I, you know, if I want people to take this seriously and to actually want to use it, it needs to not have huge downsides and things that actually get in the way and cause problems. I want to change topics on this a little bit. This is fun to kind of dig into why and what you would do for open source. Uh, one other question that I'm wondering about is how do you decide which issues you're going to fix first or which bugs you're going to tackle first? And related to that, I am also curious what both of you think about how long it should take for an issue to get taken care of. I'll answer that question for myself. For this project in particular, I think our prioritization was bugs that affect us are highest priority because we're we're writing this code. We're using it in, you know, in apps that we're shipping and making money on for Mixed in Key and Mixed in Key is paying me while I'm working on it. So obviously those bugs are the most important. I can't really prioritize people who are not paying anything over the company paying for the code. But you next, folks are so mercenary. Oh you know, gosh. But it turns out we're probably using this more heavily than anyone else, right? Because the API here is is all here, or almost all here because we need it. So we're probably finding most bugs before other people do. But then, of course, the next obvious thing is that, you know, bugs that have been reported by people and especially by more than one person are kind of the obvious candidates. And then further, a bug where there's a typo in something that gets printed out to the console or something like who cares, right? I mean, sure, you want to fix that, but it's not going to cause any real problems. But a bug that's causing a crash or data corruption or something, you know, you're going to prioritize those higher. Would you prioritize a security bug over something that Mixed in Key is using heavily? Yeah, probably so. Although, um, I'm not sure, you know, there's always room for security bugs to creep in, but 
I'm not sure what we're doing is terribly bad that way. I mean, it's not a credit card processing. That, that's true. Something. I mean, yeah, I was just thinking in general, if it was a security issue versus, well, we don't really use that API in house, but we know other people outside use it and we've got a major bug that affects us. And then the other major bug that affects people using that particular API in opening up a security vulnerability. My first thought, not having actually had to deal with that situation, but my first thought is, you know, a security bug, especially depending on the severity, um, right. you know, that has the potential to impact people in a really pretty terrible way. So that'd be an important thing to fix. Yeah. And it does affect your uh, corporate open source image, et cetera. So, I mean, it is a big deal. What do you think, James? How long should it take to fix bugs that people report? Well, that depends. Someone paying you to, to fix that bug? Assume the answer is no. Generally not. I was going to say, this no. is open source. So, yeah, assume source. the answer is no. But, you know, a lot of open source is sponsored by some companies. It's this, you know, your project is work based out of something that your company had, had done. So if it didn't work for someone else, it might show up in your code. And, you know, for libraries are lucky enough to have some type of sponsorship where people are working on things and that's part of their job and they can fix it. I think one of the downsides of open source is getting to the mentality that someone owes you this software. You didn't pay for it. You didn't do anything to make it come into existence, but they need to fix it right away. And a lot of these libraries are some developer doing these things on their free time, you know, after work, on weekends. Yep. So I, I think it's important to state that be a good citizen. Um, if you file a bug report, it may not get fixed, if, especially if you're doing some, you know, you're some obscure uh, level of that library. But just be knowledgeable that, you know, people are doing this out of their own own free will and generally not getting direct monetary compensation for it. But I, I mean, I would say if part of your goal of creating the library is having people use it, if something is not working right, you have a security bug and you want to fix it. And that's part of why people do open source is they want their stuff out there to be used. They, you know, they get some good feelings out of that. So, you know, if, if you have the, the bandwidth and you're getting enough out of it, then yeah, definitely go fix that stuff. But I wouldn't have a whole lot of patience for someone if I worked on a project, put it out there, and they kept hounding me to fix this bug that they're working on. Like, well, okay, well, I've got other things to work on now. So that wouldn't work too, too well with me. I kind of come down where you are, James. I think I might state it a little bit differently. I mean, again, if it's a high severity security bug or it makes the library impossible to use, crashes the app, things like that. I mean, I can see some expectation of you fixing it up within a few days to a week or however, you know, however long it takes to fix it, but within a reasonable amount of time. But at the same time, I mean, it's open source, right? So somebody else could legitimately trace the bug down for you and submit a pull request. And the other thing that I would bring up is that if it is crashing version 1.1.2, but not 1.1.1, then they do have the option of rolling back until you get it fixed up. So there are definitely things there. They have options. If there's no option and you're, you know, or it opens up a major security vulnerability or anything like that, then, then yeah, I could see people saying, look, this has got to be fixed fast. But then again, yeah, if somebody, you know, if somebody has life circumstances, you know, their parent is terminally ill or, you know, they have some issue, you know, some family issue with a child or things like that, they may just not be able to get to it. And I don't know if it's reasonable to expect them to drop everything and go fix it. I have a have issue of the mentality that you rely so much on the software that you can't work around it. I mean, yeah. if you... When you bring in someone else's code, there's risk there. And if you're working on this day in, day out, 
you need to manage that risk. If your application is completely dependent on this library working perfectly, then you know that's a whole lot of risk for your software. And maybe that's not the best way you should be writing things. My thought on this is basically what you, you guys have said, but I, I'm usually not shy if somebody reports a bug. Typically, I'll say, I'm, I'm assuming it's a fairly low severity bug. I'm not talking about, you know, security or data corruption mm-hmm. or something, but I'll say, yeah, I'll get to this when I can. And it's not necessarily going to be right away, but you'd be welcome to fix it and submit a pull request. And, you know, I, I, I want to be balanced about that because there are people who are brand new and, and they don't feel like they can or they know enough or whatever. But, you know, a lot of people, I feel like if you're using this library, you're already doing something advanced enough and you're using it in, in an iOS or Mac app. So you know how to write iOS or Mac apps. You can dig into the code and find the bug and fix it. And I'm also a lot more inclined to fix bug when somebody's really good about helping me diagnose it, you know, mm-hmm. with steps to reproduce and stuff. And occasionally I've had somebody report a bug. And then you ask them for more information and you just hear nothing back. And I think, well, all right. Let's not be important. I'm not going to put too much effort into this, you know, if even the person who found it doesn't care. I, I want to just throw one other thing out, and that is that I do think that maintainers do have the responsibility to communicate with the people who are reporting bugs. So, for example, if somebody comes in and they say, hey, we've got this really high, high level critical bug that absolutely is killing us off. And the maintainer is, well, I'm under a time, you know, I'm under a crunch for work or whatever, and I am not going to be able to look at any of this for another two or three weeks that they should at least let them know that. But for the lower quality or the lower severity ones, yeah, I got no problem with, you know, pushing back for more information and just seeing where we can get to because, you know, letting people know where it stands on the priority list and letting them know where you are as far as being able to solve their problem for them, at least gives them the opportunity to say, okay, well, I can either wait a month or I can solve it myself now. Yep. We had an interesting, uh, in this release in particular, actually pretty late, just a couple of weeks ago, we got a, a really nice guy that I knew was using the framework and he, um, he opened an issue saying that there was a, there was some functionality, not a bug, but a feature that he really wanted. And he was, you know, wondering if we could add that. And I said, well, I like this idea, but I don't think we can really get to it right now, but we'll try to at some point. And if you want to submit a pull request, that would be good. And then it just so happened that a few days later, I needed the exact same feature in one of our apps. And I had not predicted that. I couldn't see it coming. So I wrote it. And the fact that he had opened that issue and asked for the feature meant that I knew that when I went to write it, that I wanted to write it into the framework as opposed to being just part of our private app code. And I wanted to make it so that it was nicely designed and generic and it would be useful for more than just us. And and so the fact that he asked for it, you know, it, it probably would not have ended up in the framework if he had not asked for it. Which means if you're using an open source project and there's something you don't like, I mean, do file issues and, you know, ask questions because it's an important part of the whole development process for open source. Yep. So what else can people do to be good citizens of library users? There's something that I'm seeing in here that I want to call out. And it is definitely something in McMiddy that I'm noticing, and that is that you do have a changelog.md. You've got a contributing.md. You've got a license. So you can, you're communicating with people as far as how they can drop stuff in. You've got a changelog that shows them what's been put in there. And the license tells them more or less how they're, how they can use it and what the terms are. Are, are there other things that you, you feel like ought to be in there, or you can just talk about these things that are in there. Why, why did you put those in there, Andrew? Well, I actually just added the change log like a few days ago, finally. But I think uh, uh, these are all essentially parts of the documentation for the 
project. And I think when I'm trying to find some code that I want to use, if it's got all of this stuff and it's clear that it's a well-managed project and they're thinking about how people are actually going to get started with it, you know, the, the overall quality tends to be higher. But there are there are actually some things that uh, are kind of missing, things that I want to improve in the next release. And particularly, I want some more high-level documentation. So I think we've done a good job of documenting the code itself. And you can look at documentation for it on CocoDocs and, and just in the headers. But I want to add like, you know, getting start a getting started guide and, you know, here here are some high level explanations of how to accomplish various tasks. And then the other thing that I think is really important for library, open source libraries is example code. And I've got some of that, but I want to improve that. I, I want to have examples of, of, you know, various different fairly simple things that show how to use the common important functionality that's that's in the framework because it can be pretty daunting to look at a library like this which is fairly big i mean it's not a it's not a small library it's not two classes it's 100 or something and you know just to figure out where you should look to accomplish what you want to accomplish and seeing how that's actually used in real code is pretty important one other one that i've seen pretty often is a, is like uh i guess it's in the contributors but it's a contributor covenant so it basically says you know don't be a I, w- I want to say a-hole, but don't be a jerk. You know, treat everybody nicely when you are, you know, interacting or contributing to this library. Yeah, I, I should probably add something like that. I, I don't, you know, I don't, it's not something I've done before or thought about a lot because it's not something I've had a problem with in the projects I've worked on. But I know it is a problem, especially in, you know, really big popular projects. And I I can't really tolerate that. It just, uh, to me, it sours the whole thing, you know, because I'm, I'm working on this for fun, basically, you know, because I, I think it's fun to work on. I think it's fun to have other people use it. I get some satisfaction out of it. But, it, you know, if I really wanted to, I could could have never open sourced it in the first place and we would be happily using it ourselves. And so I think some sort of, you know, in writing enforcement that we're not going to tolerate people being jerks and, and ruining the fun for the people who are working on this is pretty important. Might have yeah. to add that. Yeah, there's one that's out there that is uh, contributorcovenant.org. And they kind of have a boilerplate for this. And a lot of big projects have adopted it. So it's pretty interesting. And it's it's kind of a good start, at least, even if you're not totally on board with the exact wording. I mean, it's basically an open source contributor covenant that you can use anywhere and you can change to fix stuff up. They're on version 1.3.0. Yeah, so I, I usually point people to that as a place to start. But yeah, I mean, for me, I, I'm kind of in the same place. You know, I've never... I've never maintained a project where people were being mean to each other or, you know, using some uh, overly aggressive tactics or anything dealing with each other. So, you know, for me, it doesn't come across as a big deal, but I do know that some people look for it before they start contributing just so that they know that it's kind of an open and friendly project. Yeah. I mean, as you get a larger and larger library where more people come in, that just people being bad to each other happens. Yeah. It becomes more of a problem if it's uh library with a handful of people working, you know, they can figure out how to work things, work things along. If it's a lot of people, then just human dynamics, that's how they, things can progress. So you have to handle it. And I'm pretty happy. I'm good to see, I'm happy to see the contributor covenant. So it's nice. If I have any, release any open source, I'll definitely, definitely look into this. Yep. I also noticed that you're using Travis CI on mixed in key, or at least you have a Travis.yaml in there. Yeah. But, but there's no badge on the readme. Yeah, I I don't know. I've thought about putting badges on there. I I just wonder. I mean, sometimes 
sometimes I see them, I'm like, oh, that's cool. But I, I don't know how much value they really add. And I was wondering what your take on it was. Same, basically. I kind of have mixed feelings. I, I sort of think it's like, well, I mean, why why are you adding these badges? Is it to sort of pat yourself on the back and say, I got look, 90, look how, I got 104% t- test coverage. Yeah, exactly. Look how great my project is. And, and that's kind of why I haven't added them. The other thing is, to be honest, I only put this on Travis. Uh, like last week, I had just been running tests manually, but I finally added it to Travis last week, so I hadn't even thought about putting a badge on. Maybe I'll do that. But that does bring up a, a larger point, which is that if you're, you know, Travis in particular makes it really easy to do continuous integration so that if somebody submits a pull request um, or even just you push a change to your repository, Travis will automatically run tests and make sure stuff has not broken. You know, it makes it easier to not inadvertently push bad code into your repository. Yep. So and how then, do you how does Travis integrate with an open source project? It's actually pretty easy to set up. Um you create this uh .travis.yml, this YAML file that tells Travis a little bit about how to build your project and it's pretty simple. I mean, this is actually if you look at the one in MIK MIDI, it's actually more complicated than some because this is for both Mac and iOS and uh and so there's some stuff in there. But it, if you don't have that, say it was just an iOS project, basically you just tell Travis this is an Objective-C project and here's the path to the Xcode project. And then Travis will just build the Xcode project and run any tests that you have in there in your unit test target. And uh, and then, of course, when you first set up your account on Travis, you give it access to your GitHub account so that it can see your repositories and pull code from them. And then um, I don't actually know the details, but they've got hooks back with GitHub so that if you submit, for example, if you submit a pull request, if somebody submits a pull request to a project that's using Travis, Travis will see that pull request, will build the, the project, run, or, you know, build build the code with the pull request, run tests on it, and then it will actually show you the result of those tests right in line on GitHub in the pull request. So you can very quickly see if, if something broke or, you know, if all tests continue to pass. Yeah. Now, is Travis a, a hosted solution? Are you running the machine on one of your servers? No, You're it's a third it? party. But it's free for open source projects. Ah, yeah, it's free. So it, okay. It's free for open source and it's hosted. So this is not the first project I've set it up for, but even on the very first project, first time I ever used it, it took me like, five minutes basically to get it up and running. It was pretty easy. One of the things that I've seen done on Ruby and JavaScript projects, and I don't know of a tool that does this in Objective-C or Swift, but there are linters that you can run against it and they will enforce your style guides and things like that. And so I've actually seen pull requests get pushed in and then Travis runs and it puts comments in. So if you go look at the pull request and you look at the particular files, it'll actually have little comments on particular lines of code that say, this doesn't match our style guide, fix it. Oh, interesting. I don't know if there's anything like that. I don't know if Travis has any support for that in Objective-C or Swift projects. There is a project or a, a tool called Clang Format that some I don't actually know a ton about it, but it somehow is a similar sort of thing for Objective-C and I, I think Swift now too, but that might be something that would be nice for them to add at some point. Well, what I've seen is that they put it into their test run for their projects, and so it just gets run with the other tests. And then it gets put in the same way that your test failures get put in on the pull request. Oh, interesting. I should investigate that at some point. Because there, there are plugins for Xcode, essentially, that will do that. You know, just when you're working in Xcode, they'll either reformat or they'll, fu- they'll flag warnings on code that doesn't match your, your code style. Uh-huh. Putting that in as a potential topic. 
and I, I actually think it would be interesting sometime to just talk about code style in yeah. Objective C and, and especially in Swift where some of these style decisions are still things that the community is just now hashing out. So you're hosting it on, or, yeah, you've got it up on GitHub. Is there a reason you've chosen GitHub over, say, Bitbucket or something else? We chose GitHub, or I chose GitHub because it's the most, I think, at this point, the most popular mm-hmm. platform for open source projects and probably in, on most platforms in most languages, but certainly in, in the Cocoa world. And to be honest, I didn't think too deeply about it. I kind of wish Bitbucket were popular because we use Mercurial internally at Mixed in Key, not Git, and Bitbucket supports Mercurial repositories. Yeah, uh, that's usually one of the reasons why I hear people picking Bitbucket. The other one is that they use the Atlassian suite of products and they integrate more cleanly with Bitbucket than they do with GitHub. We actually use Kiln and Fogbugs at Mixed in Key, so... We're not using Bitbucket, but Kiln, I don't think Kiln has any support for open source repositories. But anyway, anyway, you know, I, I, I'm more concerned with people discovering this. Mm-hmm. And I think GitHub is the best place right now anyway for people to, to find projects like this. I also like GitHub's issue tracker quite a bit. It works quite well for the kind of development I do on open source projects. Yeah, yeah, for an open source project, I don't know there's any compelling reason to use anything else except GitHub. Yeah. That's Just the pull request tools are much better than... Yep. Bitbucket. So one other thing I want to ask about, and that is that it looks like you've got some generated documentation on CocoDocs. So how how did you pull that together? Is there some process behind that, or is it just the way you format your documents? So this is pretty cool. And I and I actually I'm not sure I'm the biggest fan of CocoaPods in the world. I don't use CocoaPods myself, but CocoDocs, which is part of the CocoaPods project, is really cool and I and I really like it. Xcode for a couple versions, I think maybe since version five, or maybe it was even one of the four point something versions, has had support for for documentation in the headers uh that Xcode picks up. And um by picks up I mean if you if your code if you've documented your code using this comment style and it's like Java Doc or Doxygen or you can actually use a few different styles. Um but if you if you've commented or properly formatted your comments in your code, Xcode will pick it up, meaning you can option click on a on a method and it will show you the documentation for that method even even if it's in your own code. CocoDocs is piggybacking on top of that to provide this documentation. And they're actually using a tool called AppleDoc, which is uh, also an open source tool that's been around for a long time. That is specifically, it's it's called AppleDoc, but it's not made by Apple. But it's specifically for parsing these documentations and generating Apple-style documentation for Objective-C code. So basically, I did not have to do anything special to get it to work on CocoDocs. All I had to do was document the code using the, you know, the, the normal comment style for documentation. And then you have to put your project on CocoaPods because CocoDocs is only for projects that are on CocoaPods and you get it for free. And they, they, they actually let you customize some of this if you want, um, just in terms of like colors and, and theme for the CocoDocs site. But I have not done that on MIK MIDI. I like it though because I, you know, I can send people a link to this, right? And it's nicely formatted yep. documentation that's not too different from what you'd find in Xcode. And then the other cool thing is there's a documentation browser called Dash that I think is pretty popular now. Um, it's not free; it's a paid app, but a lot of developers use it. And it's a Mac app, and Dash knows how to download doc sets from CocoDocs, so you can really easily get documentation for anything that's on CocoDocs in Dash. And then it's, you know, it's local on your computer. You can, you can click on something in Xcode and have it open up Dash and see documentation just as easily for MIK MIDI as for, you know, UI kit or something. 
All right, one more thing I want to talk about real quick, and then we will go to picks, and that is the license. You chose the MIT license. Was there a reason for that? Yeah, I mean, I think this is sort of the de facto standard, right? At least for projects for Cocoa yeah, open source I, stuff. But basically, I, I, I think the GPL doesn't really work for most people because they want to be able to use projects in closed source apps. And I'm completely fine with that. I want people to be able to use this. I'm not releasing it because I have this um, really staunch ideological opposition to closed source software. Obviously, I don't. I work on closed source software all day, every day. So I think the MIT license is a nice compromise, basically saying, you can use this however you want. Just give me credit. Yeah, that that's generally what I use too, though I have looked at some of the other licenses out there. The Apache license looks nice, but you know, it's it's really not that much more restrictive. But yeah, the GPL is usually like the, the complete opposite spectrum when I talk to people of the MIT, where MIT says use this however and wherever you want. You can change the code, you can copy the code, you can modify the code. You just have to leave my name on it. Um, GPL says that, yeah, if you use this anywhere, then whatever you use it in also becomes open source. And if you don't release it open source, then the company can actually sue you for violation of their license. Yep. Wow. Yeah. For a library, GPL by itself is not usable because of those things. They do have the LGPL, which works around some of those issues, but some, but not all. And it depends on what trade-offs you're willing to make. And there's also the AGPL, the Afero GPL, which also works around some of those issues. We should have uh, an episode on software licenses, though. That would be fun, too. Free lawyer advice. <laughs> Fantastic. Worth from, every penny. From a bunch of non-lawyers. Yep. But, yeah, I tend to go with MIT. All right. Well, we're kind of at the end of our time. Is there anything else that we should talk about with open source? I think we should give you a minute, Andrew, to talk about what you've changed in, in MIK MIDI since we did an episode on it before. Yeah, I'd like to do that. I mentioned it a little bit at the beginning, but the big stuff that we've added is... uh We've added pretty full featured support for doing MIDI playback. So you can import a MIDI, you know, you can open up a MIDI file and play it. And you can do that using the built in synthesis stuff in core MIDI, which is pretty bad on iOS and pretty good on OS 10. But, or you can load your own sound font files. So we've added support for sound font files, which is the standard way of storing different sounds like piano or guitar or you know, crazy sounding synthesizer or whatever. We've added support for doing recording. So you can really easily set set it up so that you have a, a MIDI keyboard hooked up to your app and you want to let the user play into that MIDI keyboard and have that get recorded to a MIDI file. That's not actually that easy uh, and it just in core MIDI. So that's a, a sequencer. We have a pretty full featured sequencer called MIK MIDI sequencer. Around that, we've added pretty good API for doing MIDI synchronizing clocks and, you know, all of that. And then sort of on the on the device connection side, which has not seen a lot of changes, but we added a connection manager that just makes it easier to implement common scenarios where you have an app that, you know, you want to let the user determine which MIDI devices they want to actually use in the app. And that can get persisted in NS user defaults and sort of automatically save those connections and restore them when the app relaunches and that kind of thing. So there's a lot of cool stuff, particularly around MIDI synthesis and file playback and recording. Awesome. And and, and, I, and I have to say, I definitely want to give credit to Chris Flesner, who's one of my coworkers at Mixed In Key. He he wrote a lot of the new stuff in this release. In particularly, in particular, the sequencer is pretty much all his his work, and um, he did a really good job with it. And it's pretty cool. I'm impressed with what he's done, and I think we're both pretty proud of it. Awesome. Well, uh, let's go ahead and get to the picks. Jane, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. I've got one pick today. So I was browsing on Netflix a couple weeks ago, and I ran across the Big Star story. And Big Star is a a group there around the 70s. Weren't terribly popular, 
but they became very influential uh, later on. They're one of the groups that no one actually listened to when they were around, but they say, as they say, everyone who did started a band. So they became pretty popular uh, in the 80s. A lot of the alternative bands in the 80s and the 90s took a big influence from Big Star. But there's a documentary out there on the Big Star story. And I was a fan of the group before. I had the first couple albums. I liked them, but hadn't really listened to them in a while. But got me into it, but they're, they're great albums. Andrew, you probably know what I'm talking about. But they told the story about the band and how they were a triumph of they released some great records that the critics loved and they had terrible distribution. The business end was not happening for them and no one bought the record. No one knew about it, but you can hear the story and it's interesting documentary. And I learned stuff about uh, one of the members, Chris Bell, who was on the first album and kind of quit the band. Uh, he did some solo stuff later on that sounds a lot like big star. So that was out. So I that was I was introduced to, to that through the documentary and then some good stuff. But check out the Big Star story uh, streaming on Netflix. I'll have to check that out. That sounds really interesting and up my alley. Yeah, Andrew, what are your picks? Well, uh, I had a couple picks picked out, but James reminded me of one that's kind of along the same lines, which uh, probably is more more well known than that. But there's a documentary called Searching for Sugar Man that came out about I don't know two or three years ago, probably three years ago at Sundance but then was in theaters about a guy named Rodriguez. And he sort of uh, similarly was critically acclaimed and sold almost zero albums and basically quit the music business and just worked in construction. And But kind of unbeknownst to him, he was actually super popular in South Africa. And uh, the movie's all about that and how these fans in South Africa sort of um, rediscovered him and found out that he was not actually dead, as all the rumors said. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, and found him, found him just living in Detroit, living a pretty modest life. And, um, I won't spoil the ending, but, uh, it's a good movie. His move, his music's good. I actually got to see him in concert this summer and that was fun. And last summer I went to the, the record store in Cape town that is, uh, sort of prominently featured in the movie. And, um, uh, so that, that's a good movie to watch. My other picks are a post by Erica Satan about Swift style rules. So she's just kind of put together a handful of Swift style guide type rules uh, that she's kind of collected from other people. But um, I think this is Swift style is something we're all kind of still figuring out. And so I'm interested to see how different people are doing different things. And this is a, a good article that I think just came out today or, or yesterday. And then, then my last pick is... Uh, well, it's kind of a two-part pick. So it's Apple Doc, which I mentioned before is used for Cocoa Docs, but it's also something you can download and use yourself, and it will convert your Object Objective-C documentation into HTML. And then going along with Apple Doc is a project by Realm, also an open-source project called Jazzy. And this is kind of the same sort of thing. It's like a modern, almost like a modern replacement for Apple Doc. It supports Swift. Originally, it just supported Swift, but they've recently added Objective-C support as well. And I think CocoDocs is planning to move over to using Jazzy. But both of these are pretty cool projects if you're, you know, writing open source code or even just writing your own code and you want to create good documentation for it. So those are my picks. All right. I've got a couple of picks here. The first one is something that I have picked on the show before, to be sure. Anyway, I'm really excited. Uh, Jame actually gave me a challenge related to this pick. Uh, it's Toastmasters, and I've really been enjoying it. I've been going since January. And Jane gave me a challenge when I mentioned that I was looking at going that I should try and get my competent communicator within the first year. So I joined up in January and I am giving speech number 10 tomorrow as we, as we speak, which finishes out my competent communicator. And I'm super excited. So I thought I'd kind of share a, 
a milestone for me, as well as uh, encourage people to go out and get involved in Toastmasters. It's kind of turned into more than just going and practicing speaking. It's, it's a program that involves speaking, but it also is a program that involves leadership and things like that. So I've been getting involved in the leadership in my club and talking to a friend of mine about starting another club. Anyway, overall, I'm just super excited to be involved, and I think people should go check it out. So go check out Toastmasters. <laughs> awesome. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, I, nice. I, was a, I was a member for five years of a club. It completely helped me out. I was... Definitely helped me out in my career. Probably the best thing I've ever done to, you know, not just being career focused, but being able to work on interesting things and having mm -hmm. people listen to you when you bring up ideas. So we use those skills all the time, even if, even if it's in a, in a stand up or talking to your boss or talking to a client. Plus one. Yeah, I'm also well on my way for a competent leader. Um, and some of the hard ones on that one are organizing a speech contest, which I did. And being a club officer, which you have to do for six months in order to get it. And I'm, I've been filling in there, but I haven't actually completed that. But there are a few other things that I'm looking at doing. You have to participate in like a club PR campaign or one of a number of other things for another requirement. So I'm working on that. But anyway, it's just been a blast. So that's my pick. Uh, I guess we'll wrap up. Thank you both for being here. And we'll catch everyone next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit c a c h e f l y dot com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at iFreakShow.com slash forum. 